Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Rosalind Artis, President of Benedict College, as our guest. Good afternoon. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you? I am good. I am good. Um, you go by President Artis? It, uh, yes, that and a whole host <laughs> of other things. You can certainly call me Rosalind. No big deal. Excellent. That's great. That's great. Well, hey, thank you so much for carving out time to do this. I really appreciate it. Um, My pleasure. So it's probably a big day and a big month, Black History Month. It is. We are underway, so to speak. I like to think historically Black colleges um, have a lot to contribute uh, this month of all months. Many of our institutions, uh, Benedict in particular, 152 years old. So lots of history here, lots of things to share. Well, that's great. Well, I, I'll tell you, I always love to be able to start with your personal journey, if I could. Sure, sure. And, I, and it's it's a it's a it, it's impressive to say the least. My goodness! But I always like to be able to start out with your mentors. Who are the mentors that really helped shape you to become the president of Benedict today? Oh, that's uh, a really really great question. As you probably know from my background, I didn't set out to be an educator. Uh, my first career was as a lawyer. Um, attended a historically black college myself and uh, the first lady of our college, uh, Alice Carter was an attorney and a judge. And so very much whether she knew it or not became one of my first mentors uh, in college. When I made the career shift into higher education, certainly sought out other women leaders, particularly women of color. So people uh, like Dorothy Kowser Yancey, who was the president of Johnson C. Smith and of Shaw University, the first woman to hold both of those uh, presidencies at those historically black colleges. Uh, Jeanetta Cole has been a tremendous influence to me and a great support to me. Uh, Carolyn Myers, also a two-time HBCU president, the first female president of Jackson State University. So just phenomenal, what I call luminaries um, that really both motivate and inspire, and in some instances, correct uh, when necessary and encourage. Uh, I think mentorship is critically important, and I've been fortunate to have some really good ones. So you had started out as a lawyer. And uh -huh. then from what I understand, a friend had asked you to teach courses as, as an adjunct professor. Yep. And yep. then you realized, hey, I have a passion for education. Uh, really enjoyed teaching. Uh, so the similarities between practicing law, doing trial work in particular, which is what I did, uh, and teaching is that you sort of have juries in a box or you have students in a classroom. And the fundamental difference is that jurors were subpoenaed. They didn't want to be there. Uh, students in a classroom have paid money, um, made time, made sacrifices in many instances to be there and to hear what you have to say. And so as you are making the case, um, those students are interested and excited and really sponge-like, interested in learning and soaking up what you have to offer, which is a very different experience from a jury. On occasion, you may get a juror who is bored and interested, uh, but for the most part, they are uh, compelled to participate in the process and therefore not necessarily willing participants. And so the um, energy of the classroom, uh, the opportunity to shape people's thinking and their lives in a really tangible way was really, really heady stuff to me, very attractive to me. Uh, student, you probably know, sent me a little note that said, you changed my life. Listen, does it get better than that? Changing a whole life in an hour and 15 minutes wow. twice a week is pretty cool stuff. So I wanted a little bit more of that in my life. Um, oddly, as a lawyer, nobody ever really said thank you. I didn't even get a fruit basket at Christmas most of the time. <laughs> my biggest client. So um, changing lives is a pretty big deal. So education really called me. 
So now as far as just the emotional aspect, you know, when you, when you got the job, when you became a president, you know, what were, what were those emotions like? You know, I don't know if it was in a letter form, if someone called you, but what was that emotion? So got a call followed by a letter and obviously you seek a presidency and it is a, um, a very thorough search process that requires multiple levels of interviewing, background checks, those sorts of things. And so it can be very daunting. Uh, you have no doubt gone through a lot of research, learning about the institution. Uh, invariably, someone's going to ask you what your plans, your strategy, your vision is for the institution, an institution that you've never set foot on at that point. And so it really can be a very rigorous process to go through a presidential search. So the immediate feeling when you get the call is relief um, and then exhilaration, the idea that you have secured something you very much wanted. Um, and then if you're smart, fear, um, because the reality is you can't know what it's like to be a president until you're a president. And so you can never be fully prepared to be a president until you're a president. Um, I remember the first day on the job at Florida Memorial, my first presidency, and I liken it to you are a football player, a quarterback, and you get into the game, the big game, you're in the Super Bowl, and you get in the huddle and all the team members look at you. I'm supposed to call the play. Oh, <laughs> well, what'd you guys run last time? I mean, you really don't know until you get there. And the expectation is the president knows the answer. The president has uh, the plan. And so it can be very daunting. And I think a uh, level of humility is required, particularly early in a presidency, uh, to really listen and learn and ask questions so that you're making the right decisions. People have placed a tremendous amount of faith in you. So it can be a little daunting. Well, and in talking to other presidents, you know, I, I hear that, you know, being a president, you know, you're the president of an institution, but then in a way you're almost, you're also the mayor of the town in a way, you know, because you're That's building true. relationships with the local community, but you're also running. That's true. An enterprise, an entire city. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. An entire city. Um, we certainly have experienced that in a very real way here at Benedict College. Uh, we're a very small campus, an insulated campus, a private sort of gated campus within the city of Columbia. And so we have um, a pretty nice perimeter to maintain, um, but water sewer infrastructure matters here. Technology infrastructure matters here. And so much as a mayor would do, uh, big infrastructure projects are on the menu most of the time, thinking about how one thing impacts another. One decision impacts the residents who live in this dormitory versus those who live in the other one. And so I think it's very, very similar. Um, you are providing for the needs of your citizenry, your students, 24 hours a day. So where K-12 teachers say goodbye to their students at three o'clock. And, and believe me, they earn everything they get. And we certainly want to value our teachers. You get to send them home at three o'clock. Ours live here. And so their life, safety, health, uh, everything uh, revolves around the institution. And so it is very much like being the mayor. I'm on call 24-7. <laughs> now, do you, are you still able to teach? Uh, I have not had the privilege of teaching since I came to Benedict. Uh, we've been very, very busy here. I very sure. much want to get back in the classroom. I do miss that direct interaction with students. I have to be very intentional about getting out of the office and walking around and seeing and engaging with students since I don't have the luxury of being in the classroom anymore. Um, I miss that. I miss that a lot. Well, so let's talk about let's talk about college and, and students. And how, how do you define student success? On an individual basis, uh, I think the error of higher education is that we apply uh, broad sweeping measures. So what does success look like? Four year graduation rates. Not really. 
um, not for every population, not for adult learners, not for non-traditional populations, not for the working individuals, not for student parents. And yet we have a tendency to insist that everyone fit into that same category, that same benchmark for success, um, four to six year graduation rates, consistent retention rates. Um, and that just isn't the reality of the students that I serve in particular. And I would suggest it's not the reality for the vast majority of college students. Most are not the iPads, first time, full time freshmen student. And so for me, it's so much more individual. It is based on the, the circumstances the student presented with, right? A single parent with two children is going to have a very different trajectory than an 18-year-old whose parents dropped them off with an Amex card. Um, we want to identify what that student's unique needs are, what success looks like for that student. It may be a two-year degree. It may be a certificate program. It may be a master's degree or pursuing professional study. That student has to define his or her own pathway. Our job is to provide opportunities for that student to be that student to be successful uh, based on all of the circumstances and lived experiences that they bring to bear with them. And so I'm very pleased to serve at an institution that is small enough uh, that we have the time and the opportunity to fully engage our students, to get to know them individually and personally and understand their unique circumstances and be able to shape an educational experience or trajectory that is consistent with their lived experience and, and the opportunities that are before them. Well, and I know education in general is really being challenged today as far as the value of education, the value of a degree. Um, can you talk to us about, you know, why is education so important? And why is earning a degree so important? So I, I think it is, um, we talk in terms of long game. Um, I think it's a marathon and not a sprint. To be sure, our technology environment, rapidly changing environment, uh, the emphasis on skills-based learning, very specific tactical skills, um, has caused people to question the value of a broader uh, liberal arts education in particular. But the reality is because technology is evolving so quickly, because we're seeing manufacturing and other things that are really um, machines are, are taking the places of people and jobs, learning a single skill, getting certified in a specific skill has a, light, a shelf life on it. Once that skill is no longer needed in the marketplace, that student is left with no option. That graduate is left with no option. Students who are more broadly prepared are more adaptable, um, are able to, um, to pivot as the economy shifts, as different needs emerge in our economic sector. It's important for students to be able to think critically and communication still matters. I don't care how technically competent you are. If you can't articulate it, you yeah. can't get the job. And so I think um, this focus on uh, workforce development, a focus on, you know, again, certifications and training for now, the jobs that we need now is a very short-sighted view. And it really causes people to undersell the value of a broad-based education that allows people to be flexible and agile, intellectually agile, and be able to take on new skills um, into the future. And so how, how is Benedict today, how are you engaging with, with businesses to really make sure that students uh, are, are career ready and, and are yeah. ready for a job that exists today, but may not exist five years mm -hmm. from now? So I, I think partnerships are critically important. Um, they are integrally tied to institutional investment. Uh, I'm a fundraiser um, from way back. I was one of the first pathways I pursued coming into higher education uh, just because of my training as a lawyer. But begging is out of style. Investment <laughs> is what you want, right? We don't want to say, oh, please support our institution. We're under-resourced. 
Rather, we want to say, please make an investment in our institution. We believe in mutually beneficial symbiotic relationships. So when I go out to talk to an employer, if you invest in us, whether that is time, talent, treasure, uh, investment in our infrastructure, our equipment, our classrooms, our faculty, or students directly, you are um, sewing into an enterprise that's going to produce a highly skilled workforce. Um, so we do a lot of listening. I think that's one of Benedict's strong suits. Because we're a private institution, we can be more flexible and adaptive to the workforce needs. We can listen to employers when they say, I've hired a couple of your graduates, and I think they need a little more um, development in JavaScript, right? If we're looking at web development or app development, um, we're listening and learning all the time. We're willing to sit down and have conversations with employer advisory councils to say, what skills are most important to you that we can embed into our degree programs? We talk about micro-credentialing and certifications. Again, stand alone, have a shelf life. But embedded in the context of an, a degree makes that person, one, work ready immediately after college, but sustainably work ready into the future. And so for me, partnerships matter a lot. And we've been very, very fortunate here in South Carolina that our um, academic partners, our employer partners have been long-term partners. They have made significant investments in our students and in our facilities and our infrastructure. Um, and they're beginning to see the benefits of that as the workforce continues to evolve and grow and our students take their place fully prepared to do a great job for them. So, uh, with uh, you know interviews and surveys that we've done with presidents and administrators and institutions, one of the challenges that you hear oftentimes is the enrollment cliff. And the enrollment cliff oftentimes, you know, it does impact certain institutions, even geographically, depending mm -hmm. on where you're located more than others. But, you know, in, in my humble estimation, you know, I look at schools like Benedict and you were established in 1870, mm -hmm. you know, and so I look at that and I go, talk about a resilient institution you know, so you hear about enrollment cliff and is it a challenge? And you could tell you could speak of that better than I could. But sure, it is. That's a challenge. But boy, think about all the challenges that you've been through over the course of your uh, over the course of your history and still going strong. So can you talk a little bit about that resiliency? Sure. Um, so the enrollment cliff is today's challenge. Uh, it's interesting that um, as we met COVID-19 head on. I can recall very clearly being on Zooms with colleague presidents who appeared at best shell-shocked, at worst traumatized, um, trying to figure out how we were going to navigate the pandemic. And I remember thinking, huh, this isn't a whole lot different than the hurricane we had um, six months ago. It's not a whole lot different than the underground fire that took us out, <laughs> took us out of service for two days. It's not a whole lot different than the IT breach we experienced that took us down for four months and encrypted everything we had and we had to rebuild all of our systems. Wow. We're pretty adept at crisis management, pretty adept at crisis management. We already had um, an emergency response team established. We already had protocols and policies associated with those kinds of things. So for us, it was just the crisis of the day. Um, we have always done more with less. You know the narrative around HBCUs. And so when the world gets a cold, we get the flu. And so we've gotten acclimated to a lot of fluids, right? Figuring out how to survive and still make it to work even with the flu. And so when COVID hit, I looked to my left and looked to my right and saw people folding. And I thought, huh, 
that's funny because we are so used to um, those kinds of changes really shaking the foundation of the institution that we have grown some muscle in uh, resiliency, as you put it, and I, I think weathered it reasonably well. As we look ahead um, to the challenge that you specifically articulated in terms of the enrollment cliff, um, we initially weren't as concerned, but as you know, the confluence of events is what impacts us most significantly. So the cliff really tends to be around, quite frankly, white students, the population demographic. Black and brown students are still keeping pace in terms of productivity, uh, in terms of the number of students that might be college age. Certainly it's shrinking, but not nearly as drastically as for majority students. So we kind of thought, well, our population is, is not shrinking at that rate. However, when you add the most recent racial reckoning in the country that was kicked off, tripped off by the George Floyd murder, we're suddenly seeing all of this interest in black and brown students from predominantly white institutions. It's really um, expanded tremendously. So now the cliff matters because uh, predominantly white institutions that typically would have been recruiting students other than ours are now coming to recruit ours because they've got to fill the gap that's being left by the cliff on the other side. So it is absolutely a problem for us. Um, it calls on us to really articulate our value proposition far more clearly to students who may have better options or other options um, to sell ourselves and make plain that um, an education here is uh, a very different experience than perhaps it would be someone else, someplace else. And that doesn't mean we're better. We're just different. Um, and students have to make good choices about where the best fit institution is. Well, and in, in such a challenging market, you know, maybe someone would say a saturated market as it relates to higher education and mm -hmm. universities and colleges. How do you make sure that you protect your backyard? Um, you know, that is such a great question because we've been having some meetings at Benedict with our enrollment folks and our marketing folks. This is a nuclear arms race when it comes to marketing and enrollment management. The sophistication of the recruitment models at many of our comp competitor institutions is at a level at which I've never seen it. Um, just being able to use AI technology to approach our students very specifically and, um, and, and place services and activities and supports in front of them that they have anticipated that we don't even know about yet because they're using AI technology to track their patterns, their buying patterns, their preferences, their search engines, things like that. Um, this gets a little tricky. Uh, so for us, the opposite of a technology-enhanced enrollment environment really is an authentic enrollment environment. It is, um, they may know you because the algorithm told them who you are. We know you because we care. We know who you are and what your lived experience is because we have a little experience in this. We've been doing this for 152 years um, and we've been doing it well. Um, we produce students that are healthy and whole that have a realistic sense of who they are uh, in a world, in a broader global context. And I think um, have demonstrated historically in terms of productivity, all HBCUs really as a sector have demonstrated that in terms of productivity, the number of African-Americans with baccalaureate degrees, professional degrees, medical degrees, law degrees, et cetera. I think we've demonstrated we do this pretty well. So from an authentic, direct, um, personal marketing standpoint, I think we still have a niche that we have to, we have to really amplify that. So what makes the, uh, the HBCU Annual Sustainability Summit? Why is that so important? Um, because I think for leaders, um, we have to constantly be focused on the future. Um, it's long game, short game, right? Marathon versus sprint. Yes, the trains have to run on time in our city um, on a daily basis, 
But if we're not thinking about um, the sustainability institution, the next big thing, whether that is technology infrastructure, being able to keep pace um, with 21st century demands, whether that is the amenities and support services that we provide our students, recent exacerbation of mental health challenges. Um, all of those things have to always be thought about long game into the future. And so the idea behind the sustainability summit, um, Tommy Dorch and I, head of 100 Black Men, it was really his vision, um, really a compelling vision to me to bring HBCU leaders into a space that is not competitive, but collaborative, to allow us to share best practices, to think critically about the future of higher education and where HBCUs will find themselves in the next 10, 20, 50 years, and to develop partnerships um, that will help to sustain and support us into that future. Endowment building is a big deal. Um, government contracts, not just grants, but contracts. That's, that's thinking about long game sustainability. Contracts are sustainable. Grants are fleeting, right? They come and they go, but yeah. contract and capacity building are a big deal. And so as we curate the topics to discuss on an annual basis, we're really thinking about what is both impactful today and what will help the institutions be strong and sustainable well into the future. The goal is to plan for when we're not here anymore. And that's a slightly different focus than most of the conferences that we attend. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I hear about <clears throat> from a number of institutions uh, is um, sharing resources. Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that may or may not be new for a number of institutions, but, <clears throat> you know, with that concern over institutions closing and, you know, you can tie it to the enrollment cliff and other things, but, <clears throat> you know, institutions now are starting to share resources like HR, like IT, what are your thoughts around that? Because typically, as you mentioned, I mean, the, the ability to collaborate with other mm -hmm. institutions, as opposed to saying, hey, you're our competitor, we do things our way. But what, what do you think that collaboration means for, for today and in the future? So I often say uh, collaboration is the new form of domination. If we're going to survive and dominate in this market, we have to be collaborators. Um, shared back office functions that you just alluded to is certainly one way to do that. Um, we are geographically close. I am across the street from another institution. How is it that we're not sharing campus safety, food service, cleaning, um, a host of contractual services that we could get economies of scale? Even if it's simple purchasing, how do we not collaborate and think about getting more bang for the buck? I think that's one way, and it's a critically important way. The second is lots of, of partnerships arising around course sharing common core sharing consortia, where we are a part of a core sharing consortia. So if we have a course that's low enrolled, not going to make, so to speak, but our students need that to graduate on time and, and maintain their um, pattern uh, or their matriculation, we can, that student can take a course from a partner institution and it transitions right into our curriculum. We've already pre-vetted the courses. Um, it's a wonderful alternative to keep our students on track to graduation on time. For our students in particular, an extra semester is a financial burden that many cannot afford. And so we have to be really purposeful about ensuring no disruption to that um, matriculation pattern. And so common course sharing is a very big deal right now. And I'm seeing lots and lots of course sharing opportunities arising that make a lot of sense. Um, we have models, the AU Center, the ability to cross enroll, take courses. My kids should be able to go across the street to my sister institution and perhaps take a course if it's not offered over here and transfer back. So I think um, there is no limit to the extent to which we can collaborate, um, even shared facilities to some extent. Listen, I have a great big football stadium. Can we talk about whether other teams who may not have as nice or as large a facility 
can work with us to, to make use of that facility when we're not using it. So I think there's a limit, there are no limit to the number of ways in which we can collaborate if we maintain an open mind. Um, I think um, even data management systems, look at large systems like the University of North Carolina. You've got Chapel Hill, Greensboro, Charlotte, a whole host of campuses, but that's one common um, technology infrastructure that's just segregated by campus. There are more students matriculating through the UNC system than there are all 105 HBCUs together. Can we create a single system and simply segregate by campus and save us all a lot of money yeah. on um, you know, student management, course management systems, student management systems? I think um, it's the way of the future. I think UNCF, Thurgood Marshall, and a host of other umbrella organizations that work with our HBCUs continue to develop those opportunities for us. And um, I'm seeing growth in the band of the willing. <laughs> um, I, I think right. that really is going to be um, one of the things that, that is a sustainability strategy. Mm-hmm. So from a marketing standpoint, um, you know, there, when you, when you reach out to folks that have been to the institution that are alums, yeah, that's the, that's the about the best way to, to sell. Many people would say, mm-hmm. right. And yep. so how, how are you engaging with uh, alums today? Oh my goodness. I literally just had a long meeting with an alum my group yesterday. Um, the sort of traditional, uh, we have a very, very strong national alumni association presence, a very, very generous national alumni association. Um, our alumni did about 1.6 million. Um, to put that in perspective, Benedict is about a $45 million annual budget. So that's 4%. My annual budget comes from my alumni. Um, so proportionally, that's a very big deal. We tend to measure alumni giving in terms of the number of people who give. I only have an 18% give rate, but they're giving 4% of my budget. Other people have a 50% give rate and haven't yet hit the million dollar mark. So I like how much they give as opposed to how many give. Uh, we're going to try to amp that up. But it's important for me to continue to steward that population. And so through annual gatherings of the Alumni Association, um, monthly newsletters with the Alumni Association, I attend as many meetings and, and club meetings as I possibly can. I, I think they are the lifeblood of an organization. They are the living, breathing ambassadors for the institution. Uh, they are the sort of epitome of the quality of a Benedict education. If they're successful, we're successful. So through alumni highlights, alumni engagement, assisting us with recruiting in other cities, saves me a lot of money if I have um, alumni recruiters who are willing to go to a school or a fair for us, as opposed to me deploying a recruiter from the main campus to go and do that. So I think there are lots of ways to engage our alumni ambassadors on behalf of the institution. And I spend a lot of time talking with alumni. (laughs) Well, like a lot of institutions, you mentioned affordability being a, a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, are, are there ways that you're allowing students, maybe even through dual enrollment at high schools, to be able to earn credits, uh, you know, prior to coming to Benedict? Or, or how do you help address that affordability challenge that a lot of schools um, are facing? <laughs> Somebody might think I sent you this question. This is going to be my favorite one on the day. Um, I think Benedict is doing tremendous work in this space. So in terms of pre-college programming, uh, the community college system really has the um, dual enrollment market locked up in our, I mean, that is a community college space. We don't get into that too much, but we do have some really innovative partnerships. For example, we are the first college to partner with um, the Fresno City School District out of California. Um, Interestingly, they have just been recognized by um, Mackenzie Scott with a lovely $20 million gift because of the innovative partnerships like the one they enjoy with Benedict. Their students are taking courses um, online, 
during the school day, during the normal school day, my faculty are getting on Zoom and teaching those students in the classroom. So their teacher is a learning facilitator in the classroom. My professor is providing content and instruction. So they have kind of a dual model. And that's been really interesting and innovative. On the affordability front, this is where I'm super proud. Um, Benedict did a tuition reset in 2018. Um, 26%, we took our tuition down. Everybody said I was going to bankrupt the institution with that brilliant decision. Uh, But what we (laughs) took a look at was students' ability to pay and our collection rate. Our students were paying 41 cents on the dollar. I was never collecting all of it anyway. Why are we charging students, ruining their credit, frightening them away from an education when we know they cannot pay? So we did a whole uh, a whole hog, if you will, tuition reset. We took it down 26% that year. Um, we do not mark up our food service plan. Virtually every college or university in the country takes a huge markup on the food service plan. Our students pay exactly what the food service provider charges us. We're simply a pass-through. We do not take any kind of markup on that as a commitment to affordability for our students. Our housing is the least expensive housing of any college or university in the state of South Carolina. Public, private, black, white community, we are the cheapest housing because we've been very purposeful about trying to hold those prices down for our students. Um, We roll textbooks into the cost of attendance so our students do not have the textbook bill and have subsequent to COVID-19 gone completely open source. So our students don't have a $1,200 to $1,500 textbook bill every semester. I think Benedict, more than most institutions I've ever encountered, I'm just going to be honest, more than any other institution I have encountered, has a real commitment to affordability and has put their money where their mouth is. Um, We, of course, are out fundraising and, and helping our alumni continue to bring up the rear because we are trying to keep the cost of attendance affordable for students that we know are overwhelmingly low wealth first gen kids of color who simply do not have the ability to pay. And so how do you make sure you get that message out to the, to the masses? Because, you know, if you pick up a wall street journal, or if you pick up a, you know, a general nationwide news publication, you know, the data around student debt, for example, well, it's, it's, it's slanted, you know, it's not necessarily speaking about a group of institutions. And so How do you make sure that students and parents know about what Benedict offers? I talk to you. I talk to you. I have conversations like this. Absolutely. Um, And I think, you know, and again, thank you for your voice and for amplifying some of the work that we do. Um, But I think it's a great question. We have to do more. Um, I don't know that the national narrative around the high cost of higher education and debt and default um, really do place us in a bit of a bind. Low wealth students are going to have to take out more loans. If we have, and I will tell you that Benedict's population is 84% Pell. That is exceedingly high number of students who are eligible for a Pell grant, which means 84% of my kids are below the poverty line. Um, They don't have any options for how to fill that gap. And so our students are going to have loans. That is not a measure of institutional quality or credibility. That is a measure of our commitment to supporting poor children. Um, And so this benchmark that says your students have $35,000 in debt ignores the fact that our students are among the poorest students in the nation. That is not a function of Benedict charging too much. That is a function of Benedict being willing to serve a population of students that likely cannot pay. Um, Certainly doesn't make for a great business model, and it works me to death trying to make the numbers work on a daily basis. But I think it's a commitment that's not celebrated or amplified. We are criticized because our students have debt as if they have a choice. Perhaps if the Pell Grant would keep pace with the cost of education, um, our students would borrow less money. 
They borrow because they have to, not because they want to. And so I think the national narrative has got to be more intellectually honest. Uh, this is not a function of institutional quality. This is not a function of institutional commitment to affordability. This is a function of poverty. And until we're willing to have an honest conversation about the support we provide to the poorest students in America, um, we're going to keep being in a circular debate about whether college is worth it. And I think that's grossly unfair to our students. Yeah. So where do you see Benedict? Where are you, where are you going to be in five years or maybe I even say 25 years? My goodness. Uh, still here. Uh, Benedict College has been on the very land that it was uh, formed on in 1870. Uh, this is a former slave plantation. So the um, interesting irony of a former slave plantation now being a higher education institution that supports the descendants of those slaves is something that I'm just really proud of and centered by and grounded in as I walk around the campus every day to think about the trees on this campus and what they've seen in a century and a half. And what they see now in our students being able to matriculate here is really, it, it makes my heart race sometimes. Um, I see us doing that and doing more of that um, and doing it in a slightly different way. Um, our ancestors could not have imagined technology-driven education, technology-enhanced environments. Um, so we are rapidly adapting. Uh, because we have to, higher education has to adapt and change, but holistically and fundamentally, we will continue committing to and supporting those students that in many instances are not uh, the first choice um, for many institutions, but they are for Benedict College. And so I think um, while we will, our program mix will change, we are focused heavily on the technology space. We have uh, engineering, computer science, cybersecurity, and we have made manifest a very clear commitment to those disciplines because we know they provide opportunities for our students to get great jobs. Um, upon completion, our students don't just come here for education's sake. They've got to go to work. They're low-wealth kids. And so we try to be very purposeful about our programming. Though we have a liberal arts foundation, we really want our kids to have tangible, marketable skills. And so I think you'll see in the next five years um, a repositioning of Benedict College, less as a liberal arts HBCU and much more as a high tech provider um, of highly skilled individuals into a marketplace that demands that. And so I think there's some program shifting, um, but fundamentally, we're going to be right here educating the kinds of students that we're committed to. And I think doing that very, very well. Absolutely. Now, I do have to ask you, you've got some, the backdrop behind you. Yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to hear about the stories around maybe a picture or an artifact, something along those lines behind you that you go, gosh, I have a story to tell about that. Listen, I'm going to shift my camera, I think in the right, let me see if I'm going the right way. Well, let me, <laughs> let's see, let's move this. Oh, there you go. Where, yeah. where am I going? All right. Do you see this young lady hanging sure up do. on my wall? I should All be, right. Yep. You probably can't see her super well. And if I was closer, you could. But that is um, a drawing by one of my students, uh, an art student here at Benedict College. And what you can't see is probably that this is a young African-American woman, very studious. She has on a pair of spectacles, um, but she also has a birdcage on her head and it's mm -hmm. broken open. And so to me, that's really synonymous with uh, Maya Angelou's work. 
around cage bird sings and this notion that at Benedict College, we are freeing the mind. Individuals who we don't necessarily see as college material, as college students, we are opening up a whole new world to them when they come to the campus of Benedict College, whether that's in art and music or science or technology, we're providing an opportunity to break open that cage and to explore the very best version of themselves. And so when I saw this piece on display, our senior art students do an um, uh, exposition every single year. And when I saw this piece, it really, and I think that's what art does, right? It opens you yeah, with your mind absolutely. a different way. And so when I saw that particular piece, I said, I want to buy that. And I think my student was stunned. Uh, she had not <laughs> sold her art. <laughs> she had not yet sold her art, um, but I just bugged her about it. I said, I really want to buy that piece. And so her art professor talked to her about pricing and that kind of thing. And I will, I will share with you, I paid a pretty penny for her. I think I think I paid about $1,800. So to a <laughs> college student for your president to pay almost $2,000 for a yeah, piece of your right. But I, I wish you could see it closely. I'll have to send you a text image. Um, it is such it, a yeah. striking piece that I had to have it. And I'm thoroughly convinced that it's going to be worth 20 times what I paid for it in very short order, because I think this young artist is really on the cusp of being among the most talented contemporary artists in the country. And so, um, but the imagery of it was so compelling to me that I had to have it. Um, she can, she told me actually a year after she graduated. So I've had this piece about two years um, that she cried. She didn't really want to sell it, but she was scared to say no because I was the president. <laughs> and she thought by putting some ridiculous price on it, $1,800, but there's no way I would pay that. And so uh, I think it stunned her when I wrote her a check for $1,800. <laughs> but she really was trying to drive me out of the market. She really didn't want to part with her original um, and had not yet learned how to print your art. I mean, to be able to make replicated prints or right, sure. prints. And so she's learning, right? The business of art. She has now sold a, an original and um, really had some consternation around that. And I felt so bad. I started to offer <laughs> you it back, but no, I'm not. Cause I, not it's, it's going to be worth something. I love it. I love it. Well, what better way to, to end the, the podcast. That is such a great story. I really, Rosalind Artists, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate Thank you, you so much. Well, entirely my pleasure. So sorry it took us a couple weeks to get this on the calendar, but it's been a delight to spend some time with you today. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.